1: Four point six billion.
0: The Earth forms.
1: Cambrian. Five hundred and forty-two million. Complex life explodes. Permian-Triassic. Two hundred and fifty-one million. Ninety percent of species die. Cretaceous-Tertiary. Sixty-five million.
2: Meteor kills the dinosaurs. Fifty-five
1: million. Primates appear. Two point three million. Pleistocene. Two hundred thousand. Humans. Twenty thousand.
2: Agricultural 250. revolution. Industrial
1: revolution. Sixty. With Great animals. acceleration. The Anthropocene. Welcome to Generation Anthropocene, I'm Mike Osborne. Let's face it, most of us are never going to visit Antarctica. It's a bummer, but it's probably true. If you have been there or have plans to go, consider yourself lucky. Now, one of the realities of the Anthropocene is that today there is nowhere on Earth that hasn't been altered in some way by humankind, even places as remote as Antarctica and its surrounding waters. Which raises a big question. Since no one owns Antarctica, who's in charge of protecting it? In today's piece, student producer Emma Hutchinson relays the saga of the fight to save the last ocean.
0: It is one of the most remote bodies of water in the world and it is full of ice. And so to get there even is an adventure in itself. And you would travel across the world's worst ocean in some of the biggest waves. Um, I've been in 30-foot waves in the Ross Sea. I've had colleagues who've been in 70-foot waves. And so you you would travel on an icebreaker um, through these conditions until you get to the ice. I have not been crazy enough to dive in the Ross Sea. (laughs) The waters are below the point of freezing. They're almost negative 2 degrees centigrade. Um, And even the fish that live there have to have antifreeze in their blood to keep from freezing. They have these sponges, these white glass sponges that can actually grow to be the size of 50 gallon drums. There are colorful purple and red sea stars and urchins. There are sea spiders that actually grow to the size of dinner plates. They're huge and they'll be walking across the seafloor. You'll see anemones, worms, crustaceans, all kinds of animals like a very colorful, vibrant seafloor below the ice.
2: This is research scientist Cassandra Brooks describing the Ross Sea in Antarctica. The Ross Sea is also known as the last ocean. In these frigid conditions, you might not expect there to be much life at all. But if you looked into the cold waters, you'd discover that there's actually a thriving ecosystem
0: under the icy surface. The Ross Sea actually is the most productive stretch of the Southern Ocean. So there is life in all of Antarctica. but. There's more life, proportionally, there's more life in the Ross Sea than anywhere else.
2: There's more life here, partly because there are lots of krill, microscopic creatures that support the entire marine food web. The strong winds in the Ross Sea blow away some of the ice off the continental shelf. This leaves a pool of open water where the krill can grow, creating a huge bloom of blues and greens that can be seen from space.
0: We know that globally our oceans are plagued by pollution, overfishing, habitat degradation, alien species. There's so many things that we're doing to the oceans to damage it. But the Ross sea, in in part due to its remoteness and its sheer ice, has been protected from most of these human impacts. The Ross sea has been described as the last ocean because it's considered by many to be the last intact large marine ecosystem we have left on Earth.
2: As evidence of climate change has accumulated in the past few decades, scientists argue that the Ross Sea is an important ecosystem to protect. But it's remote, and for a long time, there really weren't any threats. That is, until one day in 1996, when a fishing vessel from New Zealand broke through the ice and dropped a long line. The fishermen were looking for toothfish, also known as Chilean sea bass. Before too long, more fishing vessels started coming to the Ross Sea. Pretty soon, fishermen were catching 3,000 tons
0: of toothfish every year. It is an Olympic style fishery, which means that those vessels from 12 different countries compete in a relatively small area um, for that catch. and. In terms of the effects on the ecosystem, what we know what we know already is that the large toothfish appear to be gone.
2: This overfishing will almost certainly have cascading impacts on the entire Ross Sea ecosystem. Toothfish are the largest fish predator there. They control the populations of smaller fish and also are prey to bigger organisms like orcas and seals. Their removal throws off the entire food web. When I first heard about the Ross Sea, I was shocked to learn that fishing was even allowed there. But actually, it turns out that the question of who gets to decide what's allowed in Antarctica is extremely complicated. To begin to understand the governance and legal structure, you need to go all the way back to the polar explorers who traveled there generations ago.
3: So it's the human history of Antarctica... is is less than 200 years old. So it's sort of 2020-2021 will be the the 200th anniversary of the the first recorded sightings of of the Antarctic continent.
2: This is Adrian Halkins, a polar historian at Colorado State. He's devoted his career to studying the environmental and geopolitical history of both Antarctica and the North Pole. But he mostly works on Antarctica. He told us that the southern continent has long had a mystique to it, way before humans even laid eyes on Antarctica.
3: So if you pick up a book on Antarctic history, it'll often begin by saying that the the Greeks speculated about uh, the existence of a a southern continent uh, based on ideas of balance and and different things, and it was the anti-Arctic, so that's how it's got its name and then in the in the 18th century you had a, a number of voyages of exploration that got closer and closer to the Antarctic continent so it was a gradual um sort of chipping away at at the unknown of what was what was there
2: in a way the ross sea fisheries are part of a long running tradition of societies going to increasing extremes in order to exploit natural resources
3: interestingly um i think the the most uh the most important group in the discovery of Antarctica was actually the, the sealers, uh, the seal hunters who were going further and further south trying to hunt um, fur seals and, and, and then elephant seals. And they kind of created this resource frontier as they killed the seals in one place. They needed to find new colonies to exploit. So that drove them southwards.
2: Antarctica's early human history might seem like a time of fearless explorers, adventure, glory, and tragedy. And that's all kind of true. But of course, it was also about money. A lot of the early explorations were motivated by a desire to claim territory and secure land bases for whaling and seal hunting. During the late 19th and early 20th century, the three main contenders for Antarctic conquest were England, Chile, and Argentina. Later, more countries started laying claims.
3: Um, By the 1940s, you had a three-way, there were three countries that were all claiming the Antarctic Peninsula region as their own. Other parts of the continent, you had uh, other claims, um, four other claims. There was a claim by Norway, a claim by New Zealand, a claim by Australia, and a claim by France to other parts of the, the continent.
2: But how does a country actually make a territorial claim?
3: In some ways, it's kind of comical. But all of these countries establish post offices, for example, and and issue stamps from Antarctica, because that's one very good way of showing that you're the sovereign, you're performing government activities. One expedition would sail in, they they would paint a big Argentine flag on on a rock, they would sail away, the next week some Chileans would come down, they would paint over the Argentine flag and paint in the the Chilean flag, and then the British would come down and, and do the same. That happened frequently in the 1940s and 50s.
2: ownership of Antarctica became increasingly contentious. At one point, there was almost an armed conflict, but at the last minute, everyone backed down.
3: Behind the scenes, as Argentina and Chile and and Britain are, are fighting over the Antarctic Peninsula, you have a really interesting Cold War history as well, with both the United States and the Soviet Union taking positions where they refused to recognize any of the sovereignty claims. To, to Antarctica, but also reserve their rights to the entire continent. The, the 50s, there is sort of a, a growing potential for Cold War conflict in the, the Antarctic continent as a as a whole.
0: Countries were, were very scared that the Antarctic was gonna be used as a launching pad for nuclear war.
2: Some scientists, possibly getting a wee bit nervous about the whole nuclear war in Antarctica thing, proposed a collaborative year of scientific study of the continent called the International Geophysical Year. This was an important move, with little precedent. Scientists from 12 different countries headed down to Antarctica and started to work together.
3: One of the things that happened was that you have a lot of scientists going down to Antarctica and realizing that the legends of the hostile environment and the cold and the snow and the deep ice, they're actually a reality. And the, the prospect of finding anything valuable in the short to medium term is is very minimal. And this kind of paved the way for an international treaty where effectively the 12 countries that were involved in IGY Antarctic research agreed to disagree about the sovereignty of Antarctica, countries that have made sovereignty claims, suspended their claims, and created, um, I describe it as a limited internationalization.
2: The countries all signed the Antarctic Treaty of 1959 and for the past few decades, there's been a tense peace and a funky but functional governmental structure in place. The treaty not only forges a loose collaboration between these countries, it also sets up certain protections around the Antarctic environment. Officially, no one can claim territory, extract natural resources, or even survey for natural resources. But here's the thing. The 1959 Antarctic Treaty protected the land, but not the oceans. So the oceans were basically open access until 1980, with the signing of, and this is a mouthful, the Convention on the Conservation of Antarctic Marine Living Resources. People just call it CAMLR for short. The CAMLR Treaty said that countries could fish in Antarctic waters, as long as they took environmental impacts into account. But when the Ross Sea fisheries started taking off in the 1990s, researchers started sounding the alarm bells. So in 2002, scientists asked Kamlar to consider protecting the Ross Sea by establishing a Marine Protected Area, or MPA. This would dictate where fishing could and could not happen in the Ross Sea. Here's Cassandra Brooks again.
0: So across the world's oceans, we've seen that marine protected areas are a really powerful tool for conserving the ecosystem, conserving biodiversity, and even for um, stronger management of fisheries. And while MPAs can't stop climate change, obviously, they can remove other stressors, which we've seen can can provide more resilience in the system.
2: Over the next decade, CAMLAR held numerous workshops and meetings to evaluate the idea. 2012 was the first year a formal proposal went before the group, and it was rejected. In 2013, it was brought up again, and again rejected. 2014, 2015, the
0: same. Certainly it did seem that countries were becoming entrenched and divided over over the MPAs where some countries just didn't want them and some countries did. And, and I think that is symbolic in a way, it's about resources, but it's also about power and control. And we don't have many places left in the world that are international spaces. And so I think, I think it's in the back of some countries' head that they wanna make sure they have a right to be in that space if we find more resources in the future, say.
2: Even with the Kamlar Treaty in place, there's still territorialism and claims of sovereignty at play.
3: you still got the, the ships sailing down and, and flying large, large flags, lots of disputes over place names, what, what we should call different parts of the, the Antarctic continent. Even today, uh, going down to the Antarctic Peninsula with, with Chileans and Argentines, there's a, there's a sense of patriotism associated with, with these places, and this, this does belong to us. This is part of our territory. And once you start believing that, then any foreign presence is an affront to your national sovereignty. And so people respond to that um, quite passionately sometimes. So the the politics hasn't gone away um, despite this, um, despite the treaty.
2: The proposed MPA was about more than just the toothfish. It was about a country's right to be there in the first place. These governments had exchanged gunfire, uprooted flags, burned bases, some people grew up with textbooks that had maps with little inserts on Argentinian Antarctica and Chilean Antarctica. So, it's October 2016, and Camoir is meeting yet again to talk about the proposed MPA. Since Cassandra had been studying the Ross Sea for years, she was there as an official observer. By this point, tensions in the negotiating rooms were escalating.
0: Many people mentioned even a Cold War-like feel in the room at Kamlar um, during MPA negotiations, which again seems crazy because it's it's completely not about the MPA at that point, but we refer to that as not having a political window of opportunity. Like, they're not talking to each other nicely, and so you're not gonna make progress on anything.
2: The trade-offs were ultimately about these international considerations and about the fishery, where to put the boundaries of the MPA, what rules to establish, and so on. For the MPA to pass, it needed the consent of all 25 nations. At the October 2016 meeting, there was all kinds of confusion and discussion going on behind the scenes. Cassandra and hundreds of other people were suddenly kicked out of the negotiation room. Kamlar decided to have a head of delegation meeting with only the top diplomats from every country. Cassandra told me her stomach was churning. The minutes ticked by, turning into hours. Finally, everyone was invited back into the room to hear the ultimate outcome.
0: And he just said one line, he just said, that's it. There's consensus. The Rossi MPA has been adopted for 35 years. And the room exploded into applause. Some people were hanging their heads. Some people were crying. People were embracing. And this is usually very serious international negotiations. People wearing suits. It's a very formal environment. And it just, all those all those formal norms broke down as people were celebrating this this victory. My husband was in the room with me, and uh, and he had been working on the Ross Sea for the last 12 years we both have so I left my seat and joined him and and we <laughs> we just had a huge hug <laughs> and uh, and there were some tears and it just it, it really felt so amazing to have worked on this issue for so long and on the personal level, to, to feel like we did something, and we were part of something much bigger than ourselves, and, and to think that we helped participate in this process that now has given this huge gift for future generations felt truly amazing.
2: At 1.55 million square kilometers, the Rossi MPA is the world's largest marine protected area. While the boundaries don't include many of the major fishing grounds, it does provide a lot of nearby protection for toothfish and other marine life. The MPA also greatly limits the expansion of fishing areas in the future. Even though some major concessions were given to the fishing industry, the Rossi MPA is still a historical piece of legislation that will likely have enormous positive impact.
0: And that's what was amazing to me at the moment. This was a diplomatic breakthrough, getting the United States and Russia and all these countries, to agree on this huge marine protected area in this place at the bottom of the world was a true diplomatic breakthrough, and it was immediately a source of pride for all the people in the room and beyond.
2: This is especially amazing, again, because of all that history of squabbling and fighting over Antarctic governance. For a group of diverse nations to agree on anything, let alone something as complicated as the Antarctic Treaty, it's unbelievable. For it to happen twice, as it did with the Rossi MPA, is nothing short of a miracle.
0: What we've seen in Antarctica is that we can have diplomatic breakthroughs despite tensions in other parts of the world. It gives me hope for places that, that are contested or that are tense, that perhaps we can use this as a model in those places and have other diplomatic breakthroughs. And having one that was also rooted in conservation was incredibly powerful. It wasn't just about peace or, or you know, not having war, but it was about doing a, a greater conservation thing as well.
2: The Rossi MPA will go into effect at the end of 2017, and lots of monitoring and enforcement have yet to be worked out. The MPA will last for 35 years, and then it will come up before Camilar again. Cassandra says it will probably be kept in place, but it does indicate that we can never take these protections for granted, even in a place as unique as Antarctica. But for now, this oasis of life in the blue, frozen depths of Antarctica remains protected as the last ocean.
1: That was student producer Emma Hutchinson. The Ross Sea MPA goes into force on December 1st of this year. If you're interested in polar history, Adrian Hawkins has a book titled The Polar Regions, an Environmental History. Also, thank you to Cassandra Brooks for letting us use some of the audio she recorded when she was in Antarctica. She also made a time-lapse video of her journey on an icebreaker boat that's totally worth checking out. You can find it at her website, which is CassandraBrooks.com. Generation Anthropocene is produced by Leslie Chang, Miles Traer, Jackson Roach, and me, Mike Osborne. Jackson mixed today's episode. Thanks, as always, to Tom Hayden and Isha Salian. Our project is supported by Worldview Stanford and Stanford Earth. Our website is Genanthro.com. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Anthropocene. Thank you, as always, for listening.